Good afternoon, everyone. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Saeed Hassampour. Saeed is an associate professor here in the Department of Biomedical Data Science. He's also in the Cancer Population Sciences Program of the Cancer Center and has also secondary appointments in the Departments of Computer Science and Epidemiology here. Saeed first came to Dartmouth in 2015. He had his PhD from Stanford in Electrical Engineering and Biomedical Informatics, and then he did a postdoc in Radiology also at Stanford, worked a bit in industry in Microsoft, and um, then arrived here. Since arriving here in 2015, he's just had an incredibly stellar track record um, in developing his research program very richly. He has a very rich funding portfolio already at this point and has uh, his PI on numerous <laughs> new R01s, so that's um, quite to his credit. He also won the early, um, the Agilent Early Career Professor Award, which is a very prestigious national um, award uh, just last year or very recently. Dr. Hassanpour really focuses on um, developing computational methods to um, use unstructured data, both for translational and clinical uh, research, to develop artificial intelligence tools to put towards those problems. And we'll hear about some of his exciting work today. I do have to disclose that um, Dr. Hassanpour does not have any conflicts of interest. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of products or devices, and he's not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to any of these activities. So thanks, Sai. Well, thank you very much, Tracy, for uh, this kind in, uh, introduction, and thank you uh, to Cancer Center of Leadership for inviting me uh, to share our research today with you guys. So I'm going to talk about the application of artificial intelligence uh, for histolog uh, histological characterization of pathology slides. And, uh, and uh, to start, I want to just point out in the last um, decade, there has been tremendous uh, progress in the domain of artificial intelligence. So this progress has created new opportunities and applications in different domains, and my group, um, uh, has been working on the application, applications of AI uh, in medicine. And you work on applying AI technology to improve healthcare. Particularly, we work on developing new machine learning models for um, analyzing uh, unstructured clinical data, like medical image analysis, and also information extraction from electronic medical records and clinical notes to support clinical decision-making and uh, precision medicine. But today, I'm going to talk about uh, histology image analysis. So this is part of our research, not all of it. And also on, uh, uh, on, the, on the basically this application that uh, relied on, uh, relies on uh, deep learning, which is the underlying technology for many recent uh, AI breakthroughs. So uh, first, I want to give you a little bit background why histology image analysis uh, is important. I'm pretty sure to this audience, this should not be a surprise. So first of all, uh, histological characterization of um, slides is an important factor in diagnosis and prognosis and treatment of uh, patients, particularly in cancer care. Every day, a large volume of uh, pathology slides uh, are generated, and there are not enough uh, number of pathologists, particularly in rural settings and in developing countries, to read these slides. 
in the uh, hypothetical scenario, even if we had no, enough number of pathologists, I should mention that uh, this task is very subjective and difficult. So it can be facilitated and improved to uh, improve the current uh, standard of care. So um, our group works on uh, building machine learning models uh, to automate detection, classification, and prognosis in many types of uh, tumors and lesions. Here I listed um, uh, some of them on colorectal polyps and the colorectal cancer, lung cancer, esophageal cancer, celiac disease, endometrial cancer, and so on, to, to name a few. But uh, given my limited time, I'm going to talk about two applications on colorectal polyps and colorectal, poly uh, colorectal cancer risk assessment lung cancer and targeted therapy, and also I'm going to share uh, a few uh, new methodologies that we develop in our lab to address some challenges, methodolog methodological challenges in this domain. So first, let's talk about uh, colorectal polyps and colorectal cancer. I should say this is uh, part of a larger project that uh, was uh, funded by um, NIH last year, and in this project, we focus on building um, AI uh, models for histology image analysis of polyp slides and use these uh, slides and also uh, clinical data from medical records and pathology reports to build a comprehensive risk assessment for colorectal cancer. So a little bit of background about uh, colorectal polyps and colorectal cancer. As you might know, colorectal cancer is one of the most common types of cancer in the U.S. and one of the deadliest one, um, uh, and majority of uh, colorectal cancer cases arise from colorectal polyps, which are these uh, growth in the lining of, uh, in the lining of uh, rectum or uh, colon. So uh, the good news here is the progression of polyp to cancer takes several years. So if the patient goes through colorectal cancer screening and color colonoscopy, the polyps can be resected and resection to cancer can be prevented. However, the tricky thing here is colorectal polyps reoccur. So after the uh, baseline screening, the patient needs to go um, under surveillance and follow-ups so the reoccurrence can be detected. Uh, colorectal uh, polyp uh, classification and characterization under microscope is an important factor in deciding the, pa the subsequent patient management in the surveillance uh, phase and deciding about like when the patient needs to come back for follow-up colonoscopies. But uh, it turned out this classification of polyps under microscope is a challenging task. So here you can see a list of uh, different studies that look into the difficulty of these uh, classification and histology slides. You can see the year of the study, the number of polyps, the review protocol, the number of uh, pathologists that were involved in reading these polyps independently, and kappa coefficient in the last column. That's a measure of agreement between pathologists in this task. And these kappa coefficients are all in the uh, poor to moderate range, so it, it shows that there's a large amount of variability in performing this task, even among experienced GI pathologists. So, in our project, we focused on uh, 
developing deep learning image analysis model for uh, automatically classifying collector polyps on whole cell images. And this is the collaboration between my group and uh, Arif Suravanata and his group at the Department of uh, Pathology uh, and also uh, with Dr. Elizabeth Berry from the Epidemiology Department and her collaborators uh, at the uh, uh, vitamin D calcium and polyprevention study. So uh, in our study, we focus on four types of uh, polyps, which are the major criteria in U.S. multi-society task force for collector cancer screening and surveillance guidelines. And also these four types cover the majority of polyp occurrences. So this is a multi-institutional uh, study. So our data set is coming from uh, Darmus Hitchcock and also from external data sources. We, uh, from Darmus Hitchcock, we collected uh, more than 500 FFPE HNE stain uh, slides uh, for developing an internal validation. And we used uh, our, our connection with the polyprevention study to collect data and slides from 24 institutions across 13 slides for external validation and showing the generalizability of this model. So through this collaboration, we extracted 238 of FPE HNE slides, uh, which is a very diverse data set. So we digitized all the slides here at DHMC. And also, I should point out that we extracted local pathologist diagnosis at the point of care from the pathology reports. So we knew we know that what the local pathologist uh, uh, at the point of uh, care basically decided and classified the polyps in these slides. So we uh, further split our uh, internal data set to training sets and validation set for development of the model and also internal test sets for internal validation. And we held out all of our external slides for external validation. We didn't use the external slides for developing or fine tuning our model. So for developing and uh, validating our model, we, need, uh, we needed data annotations. So we collaborated with five GI pathologists here at, DH at DHNC. Three of these uh, pathologists, they were uh, GI pathology fellowship trained, and two of them, they gained their GI um, uh, pathology expertise from serving several years on GI pathology service here. So you can see all the names and um, who help us in this in this study. So uh, these are very large and high resolution slides in the data annotation on our training set. We asked the pathologist to, in addition to classification of whole slide images, put a bounding box around the polyps for training uh, set, for validation set. We come up with more than 700, uh, about 700 uh, high quality, highly validated uh, classic examples of polyps. And for our uh, 157 slides in our internal, oh, this doesn't really, 157 slides in our internal test set and 238 slides in our external test set, we asked uh, our five GI pathologists to independently uh, read the slides, and we established the gold standard on these uh, tested slides based on the majority votes among these five GI pathologists. 
So this uh, figure summarizes the, our data sets and the annotation that we use for development and internal and external validation of our model. So these, as I mentioned, these histology images are, are very high resolution. So given our current uh, hardware, it is not possible to analyze all these high resolution images at once. So we use the sliding window strategy that we uh, build a model to classify fixed size patches on these slides. And after classifying these patches using a, uh, a heuristic, we made an inference about the, whole, uh, the label of the whole slide. So we used that, so, so we basically broke the region of interest annotations to come up with these patches. And uh, in slide one, we actually trained five different models of uh, five different deep learning models with different number of layers and use the ensemble of these five different models to make the final decision about the class of every patch. Training these different models on a single GPU card uh, takes about four days. So for the whole slide classification, again, uh, as I mentioned, we use a heuristic, and the heuristic is a hierarchical classification based on how pathologists make the whole slide uh, classification decision in clinical practice. And you can see that basically it's based on the distribution of uh, prediction, uh, uh, prediction uh, of patches. And these uh, thresholds are basically decided based on cross-validation or training and validation data. So for evaluation, we compared our results to local pathologist diagnosis at the point of care. And we, we evaluated our evaluation matrix for both the model and local pathologists were based on 5G pathologist uh, goal, uh, goal standard. So this uh, table summarizes uh, our, uh, the performance of our model in comparison to local pathologists in our both internal test set and external test set. And we measured uh, different metrics, accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity. And uh, also, you can see these measures uh, overall, the average, and also for different types of polyps. And then you can see almost in, major in all of the cases, our model uh, outperformed the local pathologist's performance. We also ran a statistical test. And our statistical test showed that although our model were edged higher than local pathologist, this uh, difference is not statistically significant. So we stated that our model is on par with uh, local pathologists for, uh, for classification of these polyps in our test sets. We also performed an error analysis. And uh, as you can see in these confusion matrices, the type of errors and lo that uh, local pathologists make in our test set is pretty similar to the types of error that our model makes, uh, which is encouraging. So as uh, main outcomes, our study is the first of its uh, uh, type to uh, build an automatic and accurate model for classification of polyps on a large multi-institutional data set, uh, and also with comparison to local diagnosis that made at the point of care. Our evaluation showed that uh, 
our model is on par, the performance of our model is on par with the local pathologist uh, classification uh, in clinical setting. And also, if this model is, in confer uh, is confirmed, it can be very instrumental in one of the most common uh, cancer screening programs. But uh, um, this model had uh, uh, several, um, you know, limitations that I want to address as well here. So first of all, the local pathologist uh, might have access to additional information, at least, you know, additional slides for making the uh, classification and making the diagnosis. And uh, in this case, we didn't have to do access to that additional information, and that additional information may explain some of the discrepancies between the local pathologist diagnosis and our gold standard. Also, I should mention that our results show that there is a higher level of uh, uh, variability among the slides that are coming from uh, different institutions, and our model can benefit from training on larger and more diverse data sets. And also, uh, our model doesn't include some less common types of uh, polyps, uh, and uh, we are currently working to include these other types of less uh, common types of uh, polyps in the next version of our model. So one of the criticisms that the deep learning model and machine learning models usually receive is there are black box and nobody knows what's going on inside the model. So to be, uh, so we want these models to uh, be useful and uh, to address this um, uh, shortcoming, we uh, build a network visualization model to identify the regions of features that contribute to decision of the model uh, to provide insight uh, and intuition to the pathologist that why our model made a certain decision. And also, the, this can create new training opportunities for residents and medical school students in this task. So this is an example of our uh, model visualization. So we actually use the patches that we classify to build a histogram about the probability of uh, polyps in different section of uh, pull the slide, and we use the segmentation uh, methodology to uh, use this underlying heat map to uh, pinpoint every polyp. So we um, uh, integrated this AI model with and visualization with the graphical user interface, and we are currently uh, running a randomized clinical trial with about 20 pathologists uh, to identify if the use of this uh, model in clinical practice can improve the pathologist's accuracy and efficiency. So uh, we are uh, right now, in, in a few weeks, we are running the first arm of this clinical trial, and, uh, and hopefully soon we will have more results to present. As next uh, steps, we are uh, planning to integrate the features that we extract from histology images with other clinical information extracted from electronic medical record to build a comprehensive risk assessment model for uh, collateral cancer. And this is a part of our R01 project that uh, funded last year. So now I want to uh, switch gear and talk about the application of this uh, technology in lung cancer and targeted therapy. But before that, I will stop here to take some questions. Please, Jim. Yes. Yes. And uh, the local uh, pathologist capital coefficients was about uh, 0 
which is in the substantial uh, 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 range. And we basically asked uh, uh, our uh, GI pathologists to sit in a room and resolve their uh, disagreements to were be they, able to use. Were there, like, were there sections that they couldn't agree on, or there wasn't, and, like, were the majority was just three out of five? Yeah, definitely there were cases that they, uh, because there are different level of training and different level of experience within the pathologists to, to basically in, in this task, we saw that there's not absolute agreement in all of them. So as I mentioned, uh, there is a very, you know, there is a small amount of disagreement in the geopathologists in the establishment. Doesn't that raise the question of whether it's possible to get a diagnosis <laughs> on some of these sections? Whether, you know, whether, whether there really is a gold standard? Yeah, so uh, you're, you're absolutely true that there's a lot of variability. So what uh, we did here by increasing the number of pathologists that read this, so we, we required that three out of uh, five pathologists to agree on this task, which is a very high bar to, to basically to establish the gold standard. But in their sensitivity and specificity, you were comparing both them, both their diagnosis and the machine learning against the call-up prevention. Yeah, right? yeah, no. Yeah. So uh, in the in our sensitivity and specificity table, those uh, correspond to uh, local pathologists. So we use the majority route of uh, our five geopathologists to establish the gold standard. And uh, once we had that, we calculate the sensitivity and specificity of the model and also local pathologists. So local pathologists is not, those are basically separate. They were done where, when the colonoscopy happens and when, when uh, basically uh, the slides were read and they were recorded in the, in the pathology reports. So they were not basically, those uh, diagnoses were not uh, made as part of our study. They were basically in pathology reports, and we basically validated them based on the gold standard that we established as part of our study using five GI pathologists. Now, let me just add, I'm sorry, because we're doing just the same stuff, so all these things are coming up. No. So, so what, don't you have to have a, like a, a negative, a, a, you know, a normal pathology that, that allows the machine to distinguish between, or were you just trying to distinguish among the four pathology types? So uh, maybe I should, we have four different uh, pathology types and we also have, um, let me see if I have the, and also we have the normal cases. So we basically, we asked the pathologist to, in our training set, so these are the basically all the slide labels, so we asked the pathologist to annotate them, and you can see we have the four basically uh, different type of polyps that I mentioned, and also they uh, outline the parts of the slide that were normal, and we use that as a negative that maybe you're, yeah, you're pointing out. Yes. Sorry, any other question before I switch here and talk about the lung cancer project? Okay, so, um, now I'm going to talk about another clinical application of this technology, and this is focused on lung cancer and targeted therapy. And uh, again, this is part of a bigger R01 project uh, uh, funded a few months ago by NCI, 
And we are, in this project, we are uh, focused on building uh, clinical and pathological profile of these uh, patients and uh, fund association between these profiles and uh, genetic profiles. And we are hoping that we combine these clinical findings, pathological findings, and genetic findings to identify why some patients respond to target therapy while some other patients uh, show resistance. So uh, I should mention a little bit, uh, give a little bit of background about lung cancer. As uh, you might know, lung cancer is another very common type of cancer in the US and worldwide. And in fact, uh, lung cancer is the deadliest type of cancer in the United States. Um, classification, and also I should mention that lung adenocarcinoma is one of, is the most common uh, type of lung cancer and accounts for half of the occurrence of uh, lung cancer. So classification, uh, histological classification of lung cancer under the microscope is an important factor in grading and deciding about uh, treatments and also predicting the survival and uh, prognosis of patients. But uh, again, this is the, one of the most um, uh, challenging tasks for uh, pathologists to perform. And this is due to mixed uh, histology. So the, uh, there's a huge amount of heterogeneity in uh, tumor under microscope. And also the criteria for making this diagnosis and classification is very subjective. So in this project, so similar to the previous project, we develop a deep learning model to automatically classify different patterns and classes of lung adenocarcinoma on all the slide images. And this is a collaboration between my group and uh, Dr. Laura Tafe from the pathology department. So in this project, we focus on five uh, main histology uh, subtype of adenocarcinoma according to WHO. So here you can see some example of each uh, subtype. Our data set is coming from uh, uh, patients, all patients that went through uh, uh, lobectomy uh, uh, procedure at DHMC between 2016 and 2018. So these are the lung adenocarcinoma patients that underwent the surgery and we had access to their uh, histology images. We digitized the images um, here at the pathology department and overall, we had access to 422 FFPE slides, uh, which were split into training set, validation set, and our internal test set. So uh, we again, because this is a supervised learning um, framework, we uh, collaborated with three great pathologists here to, to um, annotate our um, uh, whole slide images. And uh, this type, maybe, you know, I should uh, uh, mention, uh, this, uh, this uh, annotation is much more difficult uh, from the annotation uh, in comparison to annotation of polyps. So we decided instead of uh, establishing of the gold standard, let's just ask pathologists to independently classify these histology images and instead of comparing to ground truths, we compare the performance of our model to each of these pathologists. So this is probably a different setting, as Jim mentioned. 
So uh, for data annotation, um, on training set, we asked the pathologist to identify the region of interest, these bounding boxes for each pattern. Our, uh, for our validation set, we asked them to identify a classic example of each pattern for uh, hyperparameter tuning and validation of our model. And on our 143 tested slides, our three pathologists independently labeled the whole slide images. And we also asked them to specify both predominant, major, and minor patterns for each slide. So here you can see the distribution of the annotations in each partition of our data set across all types of uh, subtypes of uh, uh, polyps. Oh, sorry, uh, adenocarcinoma types. So um, similar to the polyp uh, project, we applied the sliding window framework that I talked about on these, uh, on these whole slide uh, images, and we trained the model on uh, patches that we extract and we extracted from the region of interest. So uh, our training, uh, our, our uh, deep learning model is a ResNet 18 uh, neural network, and training these um, uh, training these uh, uh, neural network on a single GPU took about a day. So uh, for whole slide inferencing, we use the simple uh, heuristic, so uh, which is based on the distribution of the prediction on the patches that are extracted from the whole slide. So we drop the patches with low prediction confidence, and then we use the most frequent uh, predicted class among the different uh, among the uh, patch predictions to assign the major uh, label for the whole slide. Then uh, we assign the remaining classes to the minor labels if they cover more than 5% of the whole slide. So this heuristic is based on both cross-validation and consultation with our expert uh, pulmonary pathologist, uh, Laura, in this, uh, on this data set. So here you can see the comparison and the performance of our model in this comparison to our uh, pathologists are involved in annotating the whole slide images in our test set. So P1 to P3, these are the three pathologists that were involved. And for showing the, for comparison, we actually measure the kappa between uh, each, uh, between different pathologists and our model to, uh, and each pathologist and also percentage of agreement. And also, also here you can see the kappa score uh, f for each type of polyp as here is, you can, uh, as, as is color coded. So in all of this comparison, you can see that uh, kappa and percentage uh, agreement for our model and the pathologists are in the same range. Uh, maybe our model is a little bit, you know, um, uh, is a little bit higher compared to, compar uh, compared to the agreement between the pathologists. Also, uh, in this table, we calculate the average capital score, average uh, percentage, uh, agreement percentage, and robust agreement. So in robust agreement, instead of the counting agreement between two people, we count it uh, as agreement if our model agrees with at least two of the pathologies to really show that here this agreement is not due to noise. So in all of these uh, cases, you know, the average agreements of our, uh, our model 
is uh, higher than the you know agreement between the pathologist. So this is the pathologist one and the rest of the annotator, and you know pathologist two and the rest of the annotators, and this is our model and rest of the annotators. And you can see that these measure of agreements are higher for uh, our model. However, our statistical tests show that this difference is not again uh, statistically significant. So our model practically is a. Uh, is identical, uh, the performance of our model is practically identical to the performance of the pathologist uh, on this test set. So uh, again, uh, we use network visualization to identify different features and part of the slides that contribute to the classification and the major and minor labels of the whole slide. Here, very briefly, I'm, I'm going to show uh, different parts that classify uh, as uh, different subtypes, and also I put the uh, textbook um, uh, basically description of every subtype for those pulmonary pathologists to actually uh, to see. And these are all quali uh, qualitatively validated by our uh, expert uh, pathologists that are on target for identify different type of patterns on these uh, on these slides. So uh, in terms of main outcomes, our study uh, classified uh, different type of adenocarcinoma on whole cell images, uh, which is a task that is challenging even for uh, expert uh, pathologists. And our uh, evaluation showed that our And our evaluation showed that uh, the perf this performance is on par with the pathologist on our test set. And uh, if this model is validated, it can fac uh, facilitate lung cancer classification in, lung ca in, in cancer treatment. So uh, there are several uh, limitations that we are currently working on uh, to move the project forward. One of them, as you probably noticed here, uh, in contrast to the previous project that I presented, we do not have external test set, and our training was performed on, uh, on a relatively a small data set that's coming from our institution, one institution. So we are planning to extend the study to a multi-institutional data set, and we, also, uh, we are also uh, going to extend this study with um, running a clinical trial to show that uh, launching and using this tool in the clinical setting uh, 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 will uh, improve the performance of the pathologist. Also, uh, I should mention that uh, we are looking into finding association between the subtypes, the features that we extracted with the uh, genetic mutation of the, of the patient. So we are planning to uh, show that if we basically uh, that we can predict and parterize patients that have uh, particular genetic, uh, you know, mutation, and, uh, and uh, to to identify them and parterize them for targeted therapy. And uh, as the as part of the R1 project that I mentioned, we are planning to combine these uh, genetic profile that we have in this field for these patients, and also the the features that we extract from histology images to build a model that can identify uh, patients that show uh, resistance to targeted therapy and, uh, and help us to understand why some patients are more receptive to these treatments. 
So now I want to switch gear and talk about some of the methodological advancements that uh, we are working on in this domain. But before that, uh, I will stop to see if there are any questions regarding this project. Yes, Mike. So I'm curious uh, in your first two parts, how much does, since different clinical sites, I assume, will collect the images in different ways, how much does the resolution of the image or how the image is collected impact your ability to predict? Um, yes. So uh, there are uh, definitely there are different protocols in terms of uh, 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 preparing these slides, and that definitely going to affect uh, you know how the slides look like. And you know your coloring, and and also there are different scanners to to scan these that maybe you know affect the affect the basic images and the digitization of these slides. Uh, we basically uh, should say that in all, both of these study, uh, we use the scanners that uh, are here at DHMC, so we do not have those variations in uh, due to scanner, but we definitely saw those variations uh, that are due to different protocols of preparation. And that actually, uh, uh, we, I, I didn't really go to that much detail. We, uh, we introduced some normalization and augmentation techniques to, uh, to, to reduce these variabilities, but definitely they have, you know, they have some effect as we saw in our external data set. We have a few percentage drop in our accuracy. That, uh, that actually I contribute them to the, these differences in the protocol that, uh, that, uh, that we're introducing the data set. However, training the data on more diverse data set will uh, address the, this problem. I should mention that in the Polar project, our model was only, uh, they were only trained on the internal data set, on the DHMC data set, and then one unique uh, protocol. So still, it was very impressive to see that it could generalize very well on the very diverse data set. Yes. In that line of thought, where do you get better data? With the 20x or the 40x scanner? So this is a good question. When we started a project, so in a pilot project, we were very conservative. So we wanted to have the highest resolution as possible. So if you remember in my earlier slide, uh, our resolution, digitization resolution was a 40x. But as we actually progressed and we developed and, you know, we learned from previous uh, experiments and uh, we, we basically advance our methodology, we find out 40x, you know, is good, but we can definitely work with 20x and 10x as well. So I would say that uh, it really depends on the, you know, the, the first step here is just talking to the pathologist to find out if a 20x is enough to show those like fine features that, you know, is, might be specific to a particular domain. But I should say, in majority of the cases, I, I should say 20x uh, will, will work as well as 40x. So highest resolution maybe you know, that's not, uh, not necessary in many applications. The highest resolution. Yes? I was wondering if your work has helped you understand why there's such poor agreement between pathologists. Is it, I mean, they all seem to be able to agree uh, on which areas are abnormal that's how you define your areas that you're going to focus on. But then once they zoom in on those areas, they have trouble agreeing. Is it because there's two types of cells and they can't, they disagree on which one is the predominant cell type? Or, you know, what, what do you think is going yes. on that causes 
causes the yes. different Yeah, well, I'm, you know, this was the origin of many lengthy discussion between me and uh, my pathologist collaborator. So I'm not a pathologist, so I can tell you my opinion, which is, uh, but I'm not by any means qualified to really, you know, answer this question. In my opinion, one of the reasons that it's actually poor agreement is just the vast size of these images. So these are very high resolution images and like really going systematically and just trying to scan and view all part of it is a very laborious task. So it's very difficult to, to really cover everything. A lot of, um, from my conversation, I understand a lot of times like pathologists, they basically look at, look at these images in low resolution and they depend on their intuition into what part of the uh, tissue they want to zoom in especially when they do not have unlimited time to look at the pathologist and they are at the time, you know, under, under time pressure, this can uh, degrade the quality of reading. How does the neural network So the our neural network, so these are on the GPU machine that's very fast. So we basically systematically, as the sliding window strategy that I mentioned, we systematically basically process everything. So as a result, our sensitivity can improve from that. Is this something that human, you know, uh, are, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like machine can do better than human when it comes to like this brute force systematically uh, scanning different parts of the image that's for mach machine, like how, uh, very fast GPUs can be instrumental. Yes, Dr. Constantin. This was the classification of the different types of the pathology. Yes. 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 That, that's true. So here, uh, for people, we have actually a squamous cell and a carcinoma, like uh, uh, type of cancer, as a you know different subtypes, and these are the subtypes of one type, adenocarcinoma. I should mention that uh, we are very interested to. Uh, to classify those two, but that was very low-hanging fruit. And building that model was actually uh, was was the one of the first studies that has been done in this domain. So we definitely uh, very very high confidence our methodology can can perform that differentiation between a squamous cell and a carcinoma. I didn't talk about this because here yeah, 20 in 2020 it's not a it's not a novel basically finding or no, novel results. In, two, in 2017, 2018, that probably was novel. So our basically uh, 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 model is basically drilled down in adenal uh, carcinoma branch and trying to identify the subtype, uh, sub subtypes in that branch of uh, uh, lung cancer. Yes? What made you think the ResNet architecture specifically yeah, these are, you're going to a lot of, you know, uh, details that I skipped. You actually, uh, uh, for, for model selection, definitely architecture selection that has a high impact on the final outcome. We do this test that we call it ablation study, that we basically do this like uh, control studies that we only change the architecture and keep everything the, the same to see the effect of that on the final result. And that's what we use the validation set. Uh, uh, to, to basically to decide on. And I didn't really uh, go into details here, but we ran different 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 type of architectures to to come up with this. And 
uh, this architecture, and I'm not surprised by any means that why this architecture comments the best because there are uh, different uh, different uh, theoretical basically reasons that why this model can outperform other basic contenders in this domain. But that's probably beyond the, uh, the scope of this talk. Yes. Basically, what you're showing is a really nice way of kind of typically quantify changes in the, in the yeah. biopsy. Yes. But you mentioned about streaming the that data with uh, molecular data point mutation. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit? Because it's an HRE. In other words, are you implying that the point mutation induced a phenotypic change in the cell? Yeah. That you can detect so, so yeah, this is a good point, and this is. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't really go into the detail because this is like um, I mentioned very briefly as a next steps. So we are here for all of these patients. We have the NGS screening data, and uh, and we are actually uh, want to see that if the features that we are extracting here are predictive, or at least so there is any association between. Uh, these uh, histological patterns and histological features and uh, somatic mutations. So this is the first step. And also, uh, as you know, uh, some, some of the mutations are more important than the others. There are some clinically actionable mutations that are important for uh, target therapy like EGFR and, you know, uh, BUF and so on. So we are hoping that we can actually build a prediction model that can... Uh, use the HNE slides and predict that the patient is likely to have those clinically actionable mutations. So we can prioritize those patients for NGS screening. But based, based on, on, on phenotypic changes in the Yes, in the, in the yes. yes, exactly. And the last basically point, we're hoping that we combine these uh, morphologic uh, features, clinical features from PATH reports, from EMR, and also from uh, uh, from NGS screening to predict the time to resistance for patients that are going uh, under going under targeted therapy. Okay. So this is the third aim of our R1. So you yes. think that adding a simple We are definitely collect any data that we, we we can, and if you have IHC slides for these patients, you definitely can collect that. It just at this point. Uh, uh, I should basically check with uh, Laura to see how many of these patients have this IEC. If there are have a good number of uh, patients in our training set that they have the you know immunohistochemistry uh, stain the slides, we're definitely going to combine that in our uh, training set. Okay, so um, I'm a little bit running uh, late. So my time is still one o'clock. Is that right? Okay. So I'm need, I need to pick up my speed. So, um, so you know, uh, this is good. I talked, uh, I talked about this uh, sliding window strategy and how it can help us in classification of different subtypes in different types of cancer. However, you know, those people that are very, you know, technically savvy and technically oriented, maybe they see that there are some important uh, shortcomings in this, in this approach. The first one, it requires this bounding box annotation that we torture our pathologists to come up with, right? This is the very major bottleneck in building these models. And the other one, if you notice in all of these like whole slide inferencing, we require a problem-specific heuristic, which is 
it's not easy and it's kind of, you know, it's not very elegant. So here in this, uh, in this project, we develop a no novel attention-based deep learning approach uh, for high-resolution images to, uh, that does not rely to any of these uh, region of interest annotation and heuristics. So we only use the slide level uh, annotation and labels to build this model. So this is the very short description of what this uh, model does. So we overlay this grid on the, on the whole slide with high resolution images and we extract features from every cell of the grid. We, uh, we build the attention model that come with this attention map. This is a weight for each grid that uh, identify the importance of that grid for the whole slide level task. And then we have a whole holistic representation of the whole slide by taking uh, the weighted averaging of the uh, features from different cells of the grid based on these uh, attention map. And we do the whole slide classification based on this holistic representation. This is the, you know, picture shows the, basically our methodology is the grid that I talked about. Every, you know, uh, features are extracted and we have the basic build our attention map using this 3D convolutional filter and then we basically uh, use that for the weighted averaging of these features to create this holistic representation. So why is it, uh, you know, uh, important and, adv and advantageous? First of all, our uh, model uses heavy weighted part of the, uh, uh, of the slide for, uh, for the basic, for the classification of the whole slide. As I mentioned, there is no region of interest or heuristic is necessary for building this uh, model is trainable end-to-end -end, uh, with only a slide level labels and input size can be arbitrarily uh, large. And most importantly, this uh, applicable to uh, cases that training annotation is scarce or not available. So we tested this um, methodology on esophageal cancer. You know, uh, uh, I don't know if I have enough time to go through some of the background, but you know, 10 to 20% of US population, they deal with acid reflux, that if it's untreated, it can progress to Barrett's esophagus. This is a precancerous uh, uh, condition, and it can progress to low-grade dysplasia, high-grade dysplasia, and uh, eventually to esophageal cancer if it's untreated. So this progression happens in a very small portion of population, but, uh, you know, the important point is the mortality for uh, uh, esophageal uh, adenocarcinoma is very high. So it's important that these early precancerous uh, uh, lesions are uh, diagnosed and treated. So uh, we uh, collected our slides uh, with 20x uh, magnification from uh, patients that underwent endoscopy between 2017 and 2018 at uh, DHMC. Similar to previous projects, the uh, split data, training set, validation set, and test set, and uh, we actually annotated the data, annotated uh, data both at the uh, whole slide level and also region of interest level uh, in collaboration with two, our two uh, GI pathologists. So here you can uh, see that our sliding window methodology um, uh, results for different types of basic subtypes. Uh, in, in this task and also our attention model uh, results. As you can see in all the metrics, our attention model outperformed our previous methodology, this, this sliding window methodology. But the important fact here to pay attention is the sliding window uh, methodology relied 
on these very detailed region of interest annotations. And our attention-based model only use the whole, whole slide uh, uh, level labels. So this is very exciting to me that we could actually outperform the previous uh, uh, methodology without even having access to detailed annotation. And here you can see the visualization of our attention map that can uh, show the uh, uh, parts of the, uh, the, the slide that contributes to adenocarcinoma class. So here for a normal and uh, bad esophagus with no dysplasia, you can see the attention map is all over the place because there's no evidence of uh, uh, dysplasia or cancer in these. So it's just, you know, just it is uh, it's distributed uh, uh, without any, you know, major focus. On a, on, a region, on a certain region. But as we go to bad esophagus with dysplasia and adenocarcinoma, you can see that our basically attention was more and more focused on the features that show dysplasia or cancer. So now that I have only you know, less than a few minutes, I want to talk about the last methodology that we developed to, in this domain. And, um, this is about uh, tackling and one of the other challenges and bottlenecks in this domain. So building these uh, deep learning models uh, requires uh, having access to relatively large and balanced data set. And I should mention sometimes having access to this large and balanced data set is very difficult. First of all, there is a you know, barrier to access and the cost and difficulty that, uh, you know, that you might be aware of. And also the distribution of different classes might uh, be driven by the and skewed by the prevalence of the of that class. So we might actually have very few cases of a subclass uh, in our basically in our patients. So our solution is build, building this image translation model for generating for generating synthetic or uh, near real images for rare cases based uh, rare classes based on more common classes for training deep learning models. So uh, we use a, a cycle con consistent generative adversarial network. So this is the model that exists in the computer vision domain. And uh, basically it has been applied in very different kind of um, uh, you know, images. For example, you can apply in zebras and change it to horse or vice versa or you know, paintings, different types of paintings to photos and vice versa. So uh, here we... Uh, tested this uh, methodology on collectoral polyp data sets. As you can see, the dis in this distribution, uh, the prevalence uh, of uh, TA and SSA classes in, uh, in terms of volume and in terms of number in our data set is very low. So we build this uh, cyclogan model to convert uh, normal uh, colonic mucosa uh, images to these uh, uh, more rare uh, classes. So these uh, image translation keep the structures the same, but it introduces those uh, 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 rare classes features on the image, as you as you will see in the in a few slides. So and we use this generated these you know real and uh, near real images for augmenting our data set and building a more accurate deep learning model. In addition uh, to using the cyclogan, we introduced this path rank filter that uh, only uh, identify the 
images that are uh, have a, a very representative uh, features of uh, rare classes and only use these representative uh, images in our uh, in our training. So uh, here you can see the example of his training. Uh, here the, the first basically column shows when we use the, all the images to generating these uh, uh, synthetic images and as all, in alpha uh, one over two, we use the top most representative uh, images and so on. And as we become more selective in terms of uh, images that we use in our target domain, as you can see qualitatively, the quality of our um, of our uh, synthetic images improved. So for evaluation, uh, we did a Turing test that we, we, uh, that we presented 200 images, uh, 100 uh, synthetic images and 100 real images to four uh, GI pathologists. And we asked them to identify which are real and which are fake. And uh, here you can see some examples of, uh, of pathologist judgments uh, in this uh, Turing test and also uh, different pathologist um, uh, uh, accuracy in terms of uh, identifying fake and real uh, images in two types of uh, polyps. And our statistical uh, tests show that at least half of the pathologists could not distinguish real and fake images at a statistically significant level. So uh, finally, we use these synthetic images to train a uh, deep learning model and uh, we test this deep learning model on a test set of 261 HP hyperplastic polyps and 39 sessile serotid adenoma uh, polyp images. So these are two classes that are uh, difficult for pathologists to differentiate. And on the image on left, you can see that if we only use the synthetic images from CycleGAN, our area under curve is not that impressive, 0 0.68. On the on the image on the, uh, in the figure on the right, you can see if we only use real images, uh, this is the red curve, our area under the curve is 0 0.78. So if we use real images, we get about uh, 10 point improvement in our area under the curve for classification on this test set. And when we combine real images and the images that are coming from cycle GAN, we actually can improve area under the curve by another 10% and this is 0.89. So this shows that adding these images to real images can uh, uh, substantially improve the performance of uh, deep learning models. So I should mention that there is some uh, caveats here. And, uh, the, and uh, one thing that I should mention is uh, uh, the clinical evaluation of these uh, for this task is very tricky. First of all, pathologists are not trained to identify fake images from uh, real images. And also in this task, we only show these fixed size patches to uh, pathologists to, to, to perform this task and we didn't give them the whole slide. So uh, there are more work in this domain uh, needs to be done. And also we are currently working on replicating this result on different data sets. So also one more thing, we applied this uh, model on uh, other sources coming from lung biopsy and also dogs on the internet and to convert them to polyps and the results are kind of funny <laughs> and impressive. And uh, 
since it's one o'clock, I just want to mention very briefly that today I just only, I just talked about just lots of um, opportunities in domain. However, there are several challenges that remains that we need to address them. The first of all, uh, we need to establish reproducibility and generalizability. That's why we are working on building multi-institutional data sets and developing and validating our model on these large data sets to show the generalizability. And we're also running prospective clinical trials to show, the, show that this model can really improve uh, the performance in real practice. Also, we need to establish trust between AI and uh, the users of these models. And, the, and uh, in that direction, as I mentioned before, we're working on explainability and visualization of these uh, networks, and we consistently uh, working with the clinicians to explain the limitation of our models so they can uh, use them in practice appropriately. Uh, at the end, I want to thank my group, uh, our uh, wonderful group of pathologists at the DHMC, uh, at DHMC who, who were very instrumental in, the, in these projects, uh, our collaborators and our funding sources. And I stop here and take your questions. Thank you so much. Yes. It's really, really kind of fun to see what you're doing there. It's very exciting. Thank you. Very exciting work. Um, the, so the Google is like, has a lot of these classifiers kind of available. And they have standardized test images that people, if they're comparing two different classifiers, they run it on the standard test images. You have to show that your classifier works better than other, other classifiers. The whole issue of multi-institutional data sets, I think, is key in, in your field because, you know, if you've got a good classifier, you won't know if it's better than another classifier unless you run both the classifiers on a standard set of images. So I guess the question I have is, is it NCI to do that? Would, I would think that NCI or some of them, I mean, they're interested in genetic data sets. Would they be interested in large, standardized, yeah, well, uh, we have access to a few uh, data sets that are labeled, and people are using them as to, to show that, you know, for comparison. By no means, this is a large, you know, multi-institutional data set. So I, I should say we are not, yeah, we, we, we see a lot of uh, discussions about building such, you know, uh, benchmarks for, uh, for in this domain. And, but uh, this is just very early, early years. So we are not, I, I should say that in computer vision, as you mentioned in other, you know, in a, in, a, in a generic computer vision domain, we have benchmarks that people use that for validating and comparison. But in this domain, we are basically, uh, have much smaller data sets and they're all, all scattered uh, all over the place in different, um, you know, coming from different institutions. And um, as, uh, as far as I remember, none of them are multi-institutional. So we are very early stages and we still have a long way to go. Yes. 